Welcome to episode 18 of Cameras of the Camerosity Podcast, the first ever open source film photography podcast. I'm your host, Josh Eckman, and from Yellow Springs, Ohio, Mr. Paul Reibold. How are you doing, Paul? Good, Josh. How's it going there in Dyer? Good. <laughs> All right. From Gainesville, Florida, Mr. Anthony Rue. How close are you to Disney World, Anthony? Oh, I'm about two hours away from the Magic Kingdom. And finally, all the way from Sydney, Australia, Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. Are you going to be a robot today, Theo? Uh, robot Theo is out there conquering the world right now, so um, he's quite busy. But um, I just want to take a couple of seconds here to thank everybody that reached out after my COVID diagnosis last episode. Really appreciate um, people reaching out and uh, checking up on me. It just goes to show that the heart within this community. So um, thank you, everybody. We're glad you're feeling better, Theo. And thank you, Josh, for doing that amazing intro. Thanks, buddy. Hey, hey Mike. Yeah. So much for job security. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think you're replaceable now, Mike. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's not hard to do this. Tonight, we have another special guest for you. Mr. Peter Kitchingman is a collector and author of the book, Canon M39 Rangefinder Lenses, 1939-1971, A Collector's Guide. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you. First, the first time I've ever done anything like this. So. Yeah, no problem. This is a little bit different than some of the other ones because we kind of do it live. So we have a whole bunch of people in the waiting room. I'm going to start letting some people in. Uh, while we're doing that, though, maybe... You want to give a little bit of background um, on yourself? How long have you been doing this for? Maybe talk about the book a little bit. Well, I've got a bit of a bio in the book. But it virtually started, uh, my first Canon I bought was in South Africa in 1966. No, 67. I just finished a trip from London to Joburg right up the Nile, which took three months. So then I bought a, a movie camera, 518 Super 8. I used that in South Africa for quite some time through the game reserves. And then when I came home, I, I uh, still did movies with my wife, who was taking film cameras with a practica. And uh, I had, then I bought her a Canon EXEE, which I didn't use much. And then I, I bought a Canon FTB. So, but my first rangefinder, I didn't get into collecting Canon cameras until 1994, I think. And uh, it was only because some guy walked into my optical practice and uh, said, am I a camera collector? Only because I had some cameras in the window. And at the time I said, no. So he um, said, well, the, uh, there is a camera collectors club in um, Perth in Western Australia. So I went to the first meeting and they started talking about rangefinders. I knew nothing about rangefinder or what a rangefinder was. So was a very steep learning curve. So after that, I got into collecting cameras and I collected anything then in the first year. Then I could see it was going to be either a, um, I could see what was going to happen. It was either a bigger house, <laughs> a bigger room, or we'd move to a bigger house with a bigger room, or it was going to be an instant divorce. <laughs> <laughs> so I decided to specialise. So because I had all my old... Um, original cannons, I thought, well, why not cannons? So I started collecting cannons and I bought some uh, cannon rangefinders from a, a fairly wealthy guy up in Queensland who was uh, getting rid of his collection. So I bought quite a few from him at the time. So, and one, led th- one thing led to another. And it wasn't until I got a, uh, some Canon uh, 135mm uh, F4 rangefinder lenses, I got one, then I got another one, 
And I thought, oh, I'll, sell, I'll sell the one that's not very good. And, uh, but then I noticed there was a difference between the two of them. I thought, oh, there's a variation. And when I went online, I couldn't find anything about a variations. So that was my catalyst to start collecting and start documentary Canon rangefinder lenses. And it was through that, that took nine years of uh, cataloging and collecting serial numbers and putting them away, talking to Peter Deckard quite often, uh, or email, emailing at the time, which was just coming in. And uh, one thing led to another, I ended up doing that book. So when you got started on this, you, you were accumulating these lenses. Like how, how do you acquire Canon rangefinder lenses in the 90s? Were, were you an early eBay user or was there another way you were able to get this stuff? No, I found at first, because you just never saw them over in Perth, much rangefinder stuff at all. I only picked this one up through a contact in Perth. And then I got onto online with the um, uh, Shutterbug magazine. I actually subscribed to that. And I used to get it flying out very quickly and I could open it up and find out what was available and then contact them through email. Because you could do email, but um, things like eBay and that weren't around at the time. I was able to, I'll use, and also I found out all Brooklyn and Ritz and all these camera places in America. Uh, all the, this amazing amount of secondhand uh, Canon stuff. I just couldn't believe it. So it probably cost me a fortune in postage. Well, not so much then, but now it does. But that, that was the catalyst to how I started Canon rangefinder lenses. Does being closer to Japan help in any way or, or not really? Not really at all. No. Mostly America. And because there was a lot of, um, there was stuff here, mainly in Melbourne and Sydney, from ex-soldiers who were in the occupation forces up in Japan. And they brought back a lot of uh, pretty good stuff, actually. Uh, yeah. Very early rangefinder stuff. No, it was mainly through America, through, um, then when eBay started, I got onto eBay very early in 1997, in March 97. Um, and, I, and I sold a little a Zippo lighter. First thing I ever sold. I bought it for $2 and sold it for $54. And my eyes were, wow, I can make wow. money out of it. <laughs> so basically my collection has been uh, through wheeling and dealing and it cost me nothing, man. Do you sell much or do you then rotate the collection or is it purely just collecting the, the cannons and holding on to them? Uh, purely just collecting the cannons, mainly the lenses. I've got about 164 range final lenses so sitting wow. up behind. Up, up there. Yeah, for people listening, that's very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one. That's the actual rangefinder um, uh, collection there. That's the uh, back um, bottom loaders and the back 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 uh, loaders rangefinders. Then I've got all the, the catalogs. I've got instructions. I've got a, quite a good literature collection. Then I've got two cabinets on the right here. One is all accessories. And then the other one is from uh, like uh, the Canon Flex upwards. And I stopped at around about the T60s. So I'll start with a question that, you know, whenever you go on a podcast or a, a Facebook group or any anywhere you have people who are new to this, you know, the first question that always comes to mind is like, what's the best camera? Uh, rather than say best, you know, if someone were to come up to you and say, I want to get into Canon rangefinders, like what do you recommend or how do you steer them towards um, something that works for them? Uh, well, there, as I said to you, I've never used any of my cameras at all, which is what uh, users hate. I've got yeah. all the lenses, I've got all the cameras. Um, I, I, I look at what other people talk about and they, they say in the uh, backloaders, 
that the Model P is probably one of the better ones. Yeah. Mainly because of the viewfinder and that and that and it's a pretty good uh, camera apparently. In the in the bottom loaders, probably the two F two, the last one, the revolutionary one, as Peter Deckard called it. Uh, there were four models. There was the two uh, IVSP two, two S two, two D two, and the two F two. So any of those models are pretty good. About a week ago, Paul and I uh, twisted Anthony's arm and convinced him to buy a four SB. And Paul's holding oh, right. up right there. What was that, Paul? That's a two D two. But I wanted to ask Peter about the lens when when we uh, when he has a chance. That's a fifty mil thirty three point five, isn't it? It's a Serenar to- Tokyo Seiki Kogaku. Yeah, Seiki. Serial number uh, nine something. Yeah, it's a nine two zero one. Yeah, nine two zero one. Yeah, that's why quite late in the series. Is that a, that? That was one of that was the second. That was the first series after the J mount, I believe. The um, that lens, yeah, that was the that was after they sort of unit they set, everything settled down uh, after the JC, and then it was like the Leica they had the O at the top that was the standard screw mount. Well, my understanding was they 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 used the Seiki Seiki Kogaku name for like a thousand lenses, and then they started labeling them Canon. Yeah, it became uh, Seiki. Then they changed the name. In my book, I've got a, like a timeline when it happened. I'd have to. Look in the board exactly when it happened. I think it was about 1946, actually. Might have been a bit earlier than that. Uh, they actually changed the name from Siki Kaguya to Canon. So, um, and then they changed the uh, the name from Siki Kaguya. I've actually got a, how many uh, those lenses they made, roughly. So, the uh, first of the Sikis uh, was a five centimeter, three point five. They were uh, they came out about 19. 46 on the J2, some of them. And the J2 was an M39 mount, but with a different pitch. Yeah, with a different pitch. That was the J mount. Yep. Yeah. So it, it would, it, you could get it onto a Leica mount, but it didn't, you would no. force it and it would damage it. So you didn't want to do you it. Could, you could actually uh, damage the thread. Yeah. yeah. I think Peter Decker called the slop mount or something like that in any case. <laughs> so, Canon, for anybody who's not real up on the whole entire history of Canon rangefinders, you know, as they were talking about the original name for Canon was Seiki Kugaku, uh, and they started in 33. Back then, yep. they the the very first prototypes did use the Leica thread mount, but they were forced to change that because prior to the war, Japan honored uh, Lights' patents on the M39 mount. So they worked with Nippon Kugaku, which we now know today as Nikon, to develop yeah. uh, a bayonet mount, which was similar to but not identical to the contacts mount. It had its own helix in the mount so that the lenses did not have to have a helix, making them smaller. After the war, Leitz's, and I think all German patents for that matter, were invalid. So at some point, Canon switched to the J-mount, which, like Paul said, was physically, you know, the same diameter, but the pitch was different. So any attempt to screw would would just cross thread, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Many many times you can't put some of the, like, even the... uh... Early one uh, 13 point, 13.5 f4s will not uh, fit on some of the uh, lenses. Uh, the very early ones, mainly the Seekies, very early Seekies. Is that still different to some of the, the Soviet lenses, which had the M39 mount, which again was a slightly different pitch? Now you've got me on that one. <laughs> <Not much laughs> about that. Yes. 
Yeah, I think the the very early Soviet lenses had some issues with with pitch too. There's there's been a lot of different companies that have created M39 lenses, and just because that, the diameter is the same doesn't necessarily mean they're compatible. Yeah. If I could intrude here a little bit, the uh, the the J mount was a separate from the early uh, Canon bayonet mount that was put out as a cheaper version for the public. They were trying to put together a camera that was. Uh, was less expensive and they invented the J mount, uh, which led to the J slot mount that you guys were talking about. Yeah. Uh, I have a question here though, is that when, when Canon decided to make their own lenses and stop using the Nikors on their cameras, what were they using for optical glass? Where were they getting their optical glass? You know, up, up, up until then, there were only four optical company was actually melting and making optical glass in Japan, Minolta, uh, Nikon, Topcon, and, and Fuji. So Canon, when they were starting to grind and make their own lenses, the Siki lens that you're talking about, where are they getting their glass? A lot of it, that's, you just told me on, on, on a story, which is, is nothing I want to write. Basically on the, um, I've got a very early military finger camera, which has got a um, Siki Kaguya, uh, for a uh, 75 mil 4.5 lens in the uh, in the fingerprint camera, uh, but it's not marked Serenar, so it predates at 1940. So it was made about 39. Um, there were a few workers that came from Nikon across to um, Canon, um, and Canon at the time bought some um, a grinding uh, and uh, a vitometer which measures the lenses and polishing machines. Uh, this was about 3940, but they weren't, they were only mucking around. One of the workers came from Nikon as well, but um, they were only sort of mucking around. I think with this fingerprint camera I've got, I, because I actually bought it out of Germany and I wondered why it came from Germany at an auction house, the Cologne um, auction house in Bern, Bern in Germany, um, how it got to there. And I've sort of wangled it out or worked it out roughly that it must have gone across the Trans-Siberian Railway before 1941, June, when Germany attacked Russia. Because after that, they got nothing. And any glass they got, or Canon did, was shot glass from Germany by um, merchant boats at first. Then it was um, by um, submarines. I've actually got a whole, I've got a whole lot of um, uh, declassified uh, information from Bletchley Park which was a place in um, Britain that was uh, breaking down all the uh, Enigma files. And it shows you what each submarine were carrying at that time from France or Lorient across to uh, Japan. And they've got the amount of shot glass that they were carrying at the time. It wasn't until about 1942 that I think they started using um, a Fuji glass. They didn't use it a big amounts of it. But I'm pretty sure a lot of it was coming from um, uh, the shock glass in Germany. It's probably it's probably uh, worth introducing uh, Wes, um, who's, who's already started asking questions. Uh, Wes, Wes Loder um, joined us in a previous episode around Nikon, which was very popular. Uh, so just wanted to, to welcome um, Wes in, um, considering um, a new voice sort of some jumped into the podcast. Oh, right. Wes there too, is he? For somebody though, like let's say someone is wants to start shooting Canon, um, 
you know, I would avoid the earlier J mounts for the reasons we already discussed that the lenses will kind of cross thread. Yeah. When was when's the safe point or the transition to when they actually did switch to the proper M two B, two B, two B. Okay, yeah, that would have been the first one. There's some of the S twos, all right, but the two B's got the uh, little uh, three way magnification on it, which was a, a little bit of a bonus. Okay. And that was uh, that's a feature that I actually really really like about uh, the Canon rangefinders that I think they managed to improve upon the original Leicas and that when you look through the rangefinder window you can actually spin a little prism and it'll change yep. the actual like framing size and my vision is yeah. terrible so a lot of people with poor vision I wear prescription glasses they don't like the tiny Leica style teensy yeah. weensy viewfinders but I think the Canon really helps with that because. If you use like an auxiliary viewfinder or not, you can actually increase the size of that rangefinder, which allows you to get really precise focus. Well, it was made for the 50 mil and, the, and up to the 135. Yeah. So, Anthony, you just got your 4SB, and that was the first time ever you've shot a Canon rangefinder. Is that correct? Correct. Unless you count the dimmy and the dial. Okay. No, oh, we don't count dimmy and the dial. <laughs> So I mean, what? Give us your your feedback. As you know, you 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 have a lot of experience with old cameras, but never Canon. So, what was your reaction to that? Well, I was impressed because the only I've never handled a, a Barnack Leica, uh, and my only other Barnack style camera is a Leotax, which feels sort of small and precious compared to the Canon. Uh, the, the the Canon, in a way, in the way that it handles, it almost reminds me more of a of a Contax two A. Uh, and just the, 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 the sort of the, the, it's both solid and loose at the same time. Uh, I mean, it just feels like it handles very quickly and the, the, the sort of the tactile feedback you get was, was to me, uh, very similar to the Canon. Uh, it's, it's an impressive camera, you know, the, 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 the magnifying viewfinder kind of caught me for a loop at, at first. Uh, but I figured out how to incorporate that into my workflow pretty quickly. Is the viewfinder in the 4SB quite yellow as well? Because I noticed in the um, in the VT Deluxe that I got recently, it, it's quite a yellow um, viewfinder, not just the patch, the whole thing. No, mine is very clear. Uh, the patch is yellow, but the, the viewfinder itself is very clear. But it's tiny. The view that, you know, the, um, it, it's almost like on the Metalist where it has the, uh, the, almost like the grain of rice sized uh, uh, viewing port for focusing. The viewfinder on the back of the uh, that the 4SB is really small. So when I put my Jupiter 12 on it, I was very happy to have an external viewfinder on the top. Yeah, that that's actually the three-way magnifier there. You can actually yeah. see it when that moves around. So it's an actual prism that you're spinning. Oh, he's got the lid off. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can see it. Yeah. You know, you talk to a, a, a like a like a guy, and you know they'll say that there's no advancement that really ever needed to be made. You know, the, the original Barnack design was perfect, but you know, I, I really do disagree. I'm not saying that everything is necessary. Nika would put the lever wind on some of the very later models, and I don't know that that makes the camera any better to use. Some of the very later Nika copies, I think Leotax did it too. They put that little door on the back. And, and Canon never really went that route. You know, the improvements they made, in my opinion, I think all made them meaningful. Like, the camera's better to use. That that rotating prism, I think, was a huge plus. You know, in addition to just simply having a combined rangefinder, which the lights did not have. 
but there are definitely, you know, pros and cons. Everybody has their own preference. Oh, nobody's perfect. The other thing that Canon did make, which uh, Leica took up, was the actual, um, the little uh, spool, the spring-loaded spool. Yep. Yeah. That, that, that was another little innovation that they had. Their innovations are more for uh, customer use, I suppose. Maybe they've got customer feedback. I don't know. It's funny you mentioned that spool because uh, Johnny Martyr is a, a collector. He professionally shoots uh, like a barn axe at weddings and such. Oh, and okay. he had never shot a Canon rangefinder before. So I loaned him my 4SB. And that was, he did He did overall like the camera. But the I think the first compliment he gave to it is he liked the, the spool that had the spring load, which sounds minor, but when you don't, when you don't have that with a bottom loader, whether it's a Leica or like a copy, you have to kind of shove your fingers deep in there to kind of pinch that thing and pull it out. And yeah. on some of those cameras, especially when there's film on it, it can get quite tight. But Canon created that spring where part of the like shaft, I guess, of the spool pops up so it makes it much easier uh, to grab. And then I, I do think that lights eventually did that too. Now, whether or not Canon did it first and they copied it or maybe everybody just kind of thought of it. Canon did it first. Okay. On the three yeah. That's a really popular upgrade. And what's really neat is that that spool works in pretty much any bottom loader. I'm, I'm fairly certain you could even use it in like Zorkies and Soviet cameras too. So um, they, they definitely did think of ways to make the camera better. And I really like that Canon never really resulted in any like gimmicks. You know, maybe the, maybe the bottom film advance on the VT Deluxe, uh, although fun, I, I do like my VT Deluxe. I don't know that it's necessarily, you know, a requirement to enjoying the camera. What about the stupid flash rail on the side? Oh, oh the flash rail? Nice. Yeah. That, that to me was not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. It worked. <laughs> I will say that my other comment about this camera, and I, I've only had it for about a week, and obviously it's a, it was a camera that, uh, you know, I think that it probably hadn't been picked up in 40 years, just ju judging from all of the accoutrements that came with it. Uh, but I will say that that 50 millimeter one eight lens is incredibly smooth. That just that, you know, compared to like I've got a, I've got an M3 with a, a Sumerit from about the same age. And the the, the Canon lens is so much nicer to use the, 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 the way that the indent works at infinity. The just the, the the feel of the lens. It's a super solid lens. Yeah, the, the, the 51.8 put them on the map as well. The uh, initial one, yeah, the Canon one. They also did uh, well the 35 mils and then down to the 28 mils as well. But um, all of, most of the, uh, yeah most of the glass I was getting was from shot glass in Germany. Not so much from the other ones, Tamarau and ones. Is there a quality difference between the Serenar branded lenses and the Canon branded lenses, or is it was it truly just a name change? No, it's just a name change. That's all. Canon, okay. what uh, Leica did, they actually bought out. They they would change the what the name around the um, ID ring of the of a lens, like say fifty mil f three point five, then the next one would come out f three point five fifty mil. But they would bring out a whole lot of accessories to match that, that um, why they wrote that 50 mil. So that's why I've got 800 uh, odd um, accessories here, because they kept on changing things. So what, you know, what would be like, you're just talking like flashes or what, what kind of accessories? Oh, uh, mainly on uh, filters, uh, hoods, um, 
I've got some here here now. So. Hey, Peter, we had we, we had a question that came in from from mm -hmm. one of the readers of our uh, Facebook group, and it was about the the thirty five millimeter one point five, and oh, yes. they were question they were questioning the the use of the sonar design, uh, and about you know how did how did Canon arrive at using the sonar design for a, a wide lens because uh, it was their understanding that uh, the formula worked better on on fifties. And uh, they were just curious about if you had any feedback or, or stories behind how uh, how Canon came up with that lens. Not offhand, no. The um, yeah, it was like Nikon. They were using a lot of um, German designs as well, but they're improving on those designs. And I've just been reading a book on by uh, Baird, I think John Baird, on uh, Japanese history and the optics and all that. And basically, Japan would get something, and then they would try and improve on. It with the different uh, elements or different curvatures and even to down to the um, coat, coatings and everything like that. I'm actually an ex-optician by profession. So, and I was trained as a technician as well. So I've got a rough idea what they're talking about. You talk about like, this is variations like on that there. You can see those two hoods? You can see the, the yes. 50 mil is two different ways? Yes. Well, that will, that one on my right hand will match a certain Canon lens as to the one on the left. So they would bring out a whole new lot of uh, hoods just for that one because of the new description around the ID ring. Do you think that that was something that Canon maybe did, which helped them succeed with accessorizing so much? I mean, you know, you look at a company like Leotax that pretty much just made cameras and like, I, you know, I mean, I know they had the, the semis too, but, you know, Canon, I, it seems to me at least, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they maybe understood like the more accessories we can sell to people, maybe we'll get more repeat customers or, or I no. think they were following Leica. Leica. Yeah. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. They, they could see what Leica, uh, what they were bringing out and making money at. And uh, I, um, I think I'm not too sure if Nikon bought out, I've got Rodolani's there, but Nikon, Canon bought out an awful lot of accessories. Or um, the only thing I'm glad that Canon never brought out was a half frame. <laughs> I'd never afford one. <laughs> so, you know, going back to the different Canon rangefinders that were around at that time in the 50s, one thing that I found really, really interesting that surprised the hell out of me is, you know, why, you know, some people might ask the question, why do Canon seem to be more popular today than like Nikon rangefinders? And the most obvious answer to that is there just were more made. One fact that I was really surprised to read when I was doing a review for the Canon 7, which was one of the later cameras, mm -hmm. Canon made more Canon 7s than all Nikon rangefinders combined. Yeah, yeah it was like 130-some thousand. Robert could probably say off the top yeah. of his head uh, what the total is. But um, what I find interesting, though, is Canon... Mm -hmm. It, you know, Seiki Gugaku at first, but then it became Canon, like you said, was a significantly mm. larger company, factory-wise. The war, the war, actually, the end of the war helped them a lot because they were the only ones at the time making cameras for the, the uh, well, not the only camera. There were other cameras being for the servicemen and that sort of thing. So you're saying that Canon, I know they have the EP, the, the post-exchange. They got into that yeah, early on? Yeah, that, well, that came after 1946 when the 2B came out. The uh, EP took over from the CPO insignia. Well, actually, sorry, there was a CPO originally. That was out in the uh, S2 range as well. Then it was transferred over into the 2B. But uh, at the 2B, they changed from CPO to the Japanese um, 
italics, ideogram they call it, which is in a diamond, diamond form, along with a maiden occupied Japan. They're quite, uh, not rare, but they're, they're uncommon, let's say. Now, the markings are something that interests me as well. And I've, in my book, I explain them a lot, the markings that's found on the cameras and the lenses. Yeah, because you'll sometimes see, especially on eBay, people who don't know any better, they'll refer to a model as a Canon EP when that's not really the model. No, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. just the marking indicating it was sold yeah. uh, for military, right? And, and- well, I was in San Diego once, and um, yeah, San Diego. And I went into a, a camera shop, and I picked up a... Uh, 35mm FD camera, and it had EP on it. So the EP went to 1974. So for the original owners of those cameras, though, what was the advantage of having the EP? They bought them at a military exchange post where there wasn't any tax involved. Taxes. Okay, that's where I was thinking. This was during the the fair trade period, too. So when the cameras came back into the U.S. and they did not work marked EP for export product, they the customs people could legally deface the lens they could grind yeah. off the name and marked ep would just tell them it was bought in a ship store or the base exchange or you know a px or something like that so it was a legitimate purchase overseas it was uh, no, adds no value to a, a no it's they're they're probably actually in the u.s are probably more eps and not eps uh <laughs> the most popular ep is the 2f i i have a 2f downstairs and it is marked ep yeah, well, that's the most common one you'll find with an EP on it. Yep. Because at the time, it was after 45, 46, that the uh, 2F came out. And it was also there for the Korean War as well. I have a question for you and probably for Robert, if we can, if Robert could answer. Did they make, did Canon or Nikon make any rare earth element lenses, any uh, thorium or lanthanum glass lenses? Oh, now you've got me. Um, I've got a literature here on the stuff they did use. Uh, I can't think offhand think of any of the rare earth lenses I did make. Well, I don't remember seeing any because, you you know, you can normally tell by the color. The color yeah. of the glass will be quite yellow. Uh, yeah. It's a little bit later, but I know the original Canon Flex lenses have been known to be pretty radioactive. And I know the Canon R mount. I have one on my Canon Flex. It's definitely yellow. So maybe they would have yeah. done that later, possibly. I think it would have been later. I've got a, a technical book here somewhere that's all on there. The only one that I can think of that might be was the 1.2. And, and I don't remember. I, I don't think it did. I think maybe the FL mount uh, 1.2 might have had it, but not the rangefinder. Even the 095, I don't think had any rare earths in it. No, I don't think so. That would have been. No, I, I think um, rare earths really didn't come into the R series, I think. I've got two big, two books here that tells you all what the in each lenses. So one of them is these, these two. This is an official uh, Canon book, and it covers all the lenses and everything. So it's very detailed. Is that something you could buy, or is that kind of a one of a kind thing you have? No, one one just sold on uh, eBay for um, two hundred US dollars. <laughs> so they're not cheap. No, <laughs> and that's the other one. So Peter, what point? Post-war, did, did did Canon move from using the German shot glass to manufacturing their own glass? I've got it all there on the. Uh, there's a. Um, I've, I've had it printed out. Can you hang on for a second? I'll go and get it. Sure, <laughs> sure. Sounds like we've got Robert online now. He's unmuted at the moment. Hey, Robert. 
Do you know, were any of the, the Nikors back then, the rangefinder, did they ever have any rare earth elements? Or Yeah, there were two lenses that are said to have rare earth glass. They even used it in some of their advertising. It was the 51.1 and the 35 1.8. Are oh, both supposed to have xanthium or lanthium glass, something like that in them? Uh-huh. They actually promote uh, rare earth glass for the 1.1, which was 56, 57, and same thing for the 35 1.8. So they're relatively late. Now, wasn't the advantage of that to help with refraction on those extremely wide lenses? You were you needed yeah. to bend the light a little bit more than on a slower lens? Is well, you know, the, the 51 one was a rather exotic lens to begin with. And right. uh, it also stopped down all the way to F22, which was amazing. But, um, yeah, it, 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 it gave you better resolution, supposedly. Although later on, the most famous Nikkor lens with the uh, rare earth glass turned out to be the 35 1.4 that was made for the reflexes, which is notorious for being yellow. Whenever you get a 35 1.4, the first thing you got to do is look through and see if it's turned yellow on you. But that one had not, that lens did not come out until like the late sixties. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, hearing all those ways that they were uh, advancing the coatings, you know, I think that that was probably the biggest improvement that you were starting to see in that era um, was improving refraction, trying to improve yeah. color photography, which today has kind of the opposite effect. You know, you think of a yellowed lens as being better for black and white. Um, we had uh, a participant in a previous episode ask, do any of the yellow yellowish coatings replicate the effect of a yellow filter? And we said that normally it doesn't quite get that bad. Robert, was was the uh, 51.1 a response to the, the Canon 0.95 or no, vice versa? It was, it was before the 9.5. The one one came out before the nine five. I don't know what it was a response to. Actually, it was kind of like, you know, their one four, of course, was a response to the sonar one five. As a matter of fact, their first ads for their one four said the fastest, the, the first lens or the fastest lens were faster than a one point five. Which of course, one point four is not really that much faster. That's how they actually advertise it. But the one one came out actually all by itself. The only thing that had the only one that competed with it was Zunow. Zunow had a one point one at about yeah. the same time. But um, no, they that preceded the uh, 095 by a few years. Well, the 095, Peter, wasn't that originally a, a, a video or a movie lens? No, it was always a lens just for the uh, 35 mil. What mount did they have? It wasn't. It was actually like the FD mount. Okay. Always. The, the yeah. 0.95 was originally an FD mount or an FL mount? Well, a, a variation of it. So it was like an FD mount, and then you, you actually turned the ring and the locker. Ah, uh, okay. So nowadays they're modifying those lenses into an M39 or, or whatever they want to make it into. Well, I can't believe the prices of what these lenses hit to. Well, I just found out just a, a 35 mil 1.5 sold for 10 grand. And the, apparently the movie movie scene are getting into some of these Canon lenses uh, for reasons I'm not too sure, but they're hitting big prices now. I can't believe it. Yeah, the... Uh... I did not care for it, but um, Army of the Dead um, was filmed with yeah. a lot of sequences with the F095 lens modified for something. But what's interesting for the rangefinder version of that lens is without modification, the only one it would fit is the Canon 7. Right. And, yeah. and that's because, yeah, that's right. And yeah. that's because the Canon 7 is actually a dual. It's M39 screw, but it has an external bayonet on it. Yeah, like an FD mount on the outside. Yeah, oh. but it's not actually FD though, right? It it truly is unique to the rangefinder. Yeah, well, it was just made for the uh, Canon 7 at the time. That's all. So it fitted all three seven uh, cameras. Um, we we do actually have a question from um, one of the, the regular yeah. joiners who um, who it's um, Hong uh, Lee. 
who who basically yeah. we we sort of covered a bit on how they would can was able to develop their own optics but he's he also asked if he was wondering if there was a, the drastic reduction in nikon's facilities after world war ii ended up creating a pool of optic engineers and designers who needed work and that maybe they transferred over with the implication being they maybe they transferred over to canon and, and that's what gave canon a bit of a boost up yeah very possibly because uh, the initial uh, amount of work is actually the designers were uh, came from nikon and helped out help canon grinding their own uh, lenses it's in my book i think about 39 they started with the the fingerprint camera, I think the military gave um, uh, Nikon an order for fingerprint cameras. And because Nikon, I think, were fairly, Rob, uh, Robert would uh, be able to tell me on this one, but I think Nikon were fairly flat out doing a lot of other military stuff, binoculars and rangefinders and all that. And this being a fairly straightforward one, just a three-element lens, um, they gave that to Canon to do. So, and that's the only reason I can say why this fingerprint came, because the... Uh, Actual camera is marked on the side seeking. Robert, before the war or even during the war, Nippon Kugaku had what, like 25 factories? And then after the war, they were down to one? All right. At the height of the war, they were up to 22 factories, 25,000 employees. Yeah. They also were the largest mm -hmm. manufacturer of all types of optical ordnance during World War II. Their closest competitor was uh, Tokyo Kugaku or Top Gun. But Nikon was making absolutely everything from the bomb sites used at Pearl Harbor to submarine periscopes and everything in between, okay? They made the rangefinders on the Yamato and the Masuchi uh, um, battleships were the largest rangefinders in the world. Those ships were accurate to 100 yards at 12 miles with those rangefinders. And they were the prisons were ground to seconds and not minutes. But they made almost everything. And they were just so busy, they had to make... Uh, the Japanese wanted every officer to have his own set of binoculars. And Nikon was making binoculars like there was no tomorrow. I mean, they made thousands upon thousands of them. And they were just so busy, they probably did farm some things out, minor things they didn't want to be involved with. But yeah. the major stuff they stuck with, and they produced probably upwards to 90% of all the optical ordnance that, that all the Japanese military branches used during World War II. So to go from 22 factories down to one. They, they went down, yeah, they went down from 25,000 employees to 1,600. And it has been said over and over, actually, I've read in a couple of places where what this caused was, was this vast uh, exodus of all these knowledgeable people into the, into the marketplace. And a lot of them ended up on, oh, starting their own companies. There was a lot of cottage industry in Japan in, in the late 40s and early 50s, these smaller companies that have now long since disappeared. But a lot of the, the people at Nikon that had ability, optical or mechanical, ended up working for other people or starting yeah. their own businesses because they had to find work somewhere. Nikon could not hire them all back. They only had room right. for 1600. So, yeah, yeah. so for Hong's question, I mean, I think it's pretty plausible that that's, Oh yeah. What it actually has been spoken about more than once yeah. that uh, the breakup of Nikon caused um, uh, an influx of all types of uh, people to various parts of the, of the camera industry, other, other companies, and a lot of startups, a lot of startups after the war. And after the war too, a lot of them started up their own little, uh, cam uh, camera making uh, business. Yeah, a little cottage industry. Yeah, a little, little yeah, garage yeah. industry uh, started up and yeah. they came and went. Some of them were around for a while. Some of them actually made a lot of cameras and they just disappeared overnight. But um, yeah, and there was a lot of also people that would make, there were a lot of companies that made parts for everybody else. Like all those twin lens reflexes that you see that have 100 different names on them. Most of them are just made by the same people. 
you know, you had one company that was making the bodies, you know, the nameplates, and they could put anything on it that they wanted and make all kinds of names. But they were actually coming. That's all they did. They didn't even make the whole camera. They made parts. Well, the industry from the 1951 to 1957 or 58, it always appeared to me it was like the Wild West. It was. I mean, yeah. they, were, they, were, they were, everybody had a, everybody was building cameras in their garage. If you get, I was just, matter of fact, just last night I was looking at, uh, there was a magazine that was published in Japan called Camera Art. Okay. It's an English language. It's a bi-monthly. And I was looking at stuff from like 57, 58, 59, and 60. And you go through these magazines. Now they're, they're designed for the Japanese market. Okay. And they're all Japanese. No, there's no other manufacturers involved. And the stuff that's in there is just amazing. I mean, just stuff that we never even saw here. It never was exported to the United States. Brand names you've never heard of. But it's amazing the variety of what they were. It was, it was like uh, you know, all of a sudden, everybody was making all these different. And they're all trying to outdo each other. And actually, it was great for the consumer. Um, you know, prices dropped like a rock and the competition was very steep and whatever. But some of the most interesting little cameras were made during those days. Nowadays, all the cameras all look alike, you know. But back then, they didn't. Everyone was different. Well, what what got me, what started me thinking about it was that I uh, I was going through a box of cameras in my basement today, and I found I had seven different models of Teron. Teron? <laughs> yeah, Teron. That was my first thirty-five millimeter camera. Was a Teron. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they started back in nineteen fifty-five or fifty-six, mm -hmm. so they're relatively late. But they came out with a model every six months, it seemed, before they went out of business. Petri did that too. They had they would they would keep re-releasing the same formula over and over and over again. Paul, yes. Speaking of Teron, when I was when I was in seventh grade, I saved up all my money and I bought a Taron PR. That was my very first thirty-five millimeter camera. Was the Taron PR, and I still have it to this day. Uh, yeah, I just took one to Goodwill today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, they were actually very nice looking cameras. They were fairly well made for their time. You know, most of those leaf shutter cameras don't really cock very well anymore. But uh, the camera itself is, is very pleasant looking. It handles very well. Very nice camera. Rapid rewind, rapid wind, you know. I found that a lot of those cameras, like you're right, the leaf shutters didn't wear well over, no, over time. No. Not because they were poorly made or anything. It's just time. Yeah. But, but what I did find was that the Yashikas, for some reason, the Yashica Ministers and the Jays and those cameras, the shutters usually work on them uh, and, and are relatively accurate. I mean, it's, I don't know if it was just a difference. Well, who, the main, the main shut, leaf shutter manufacturers at that time would have been Citizen and Seiko and who else? And they, watch companies. They were originally watch companies. Have you got uh, Sugiyama's book, the Japanese book? Oh, yeah. I've got a couple issues of that. Yeah. Yeah, Kutsugiyama. Yeah, that, that's a really good book if you want to uh, look at what Japan actually produced. Yeah. Even odd, oddball um, companies, what they produced. Well, one of, on, one of my, on one of my trips to Japan, I actually met Sugiyama. Matter of fact, I spent a couple of days with him. Oh, did you? At dinner at his house, oh, whatever. Wow. And uh, he, he, you walk up, you go up upstairs to his house. You park, he had, a, he had a, pick this up in a Cadillac Seville, believe it or not. <laughs> you go upstairs and you walk in his living room. He's got floor to ceiling glass shelves, just full of cameras. It was amazing. It was, then he took us up to the third floor where he has his studio because he was his, he was a symphony conductor. You know, he was a musician. Matter of fact, he did all the background music for the original uh, Mario uh, Nintendo Mario games. He did all the background music for that. 
We used to see in his studio up on the third floor. It's fantastic. But he had a camera collection. He was the only one that had a um, cherry camera in private ownership. Ooh, I got the, I got to hold that, the cherry. The only other one I saw was at the Pentax Gallery. They had one. Wasn't that an early Konica? I was. I think it's 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 accredited. It was the first actual Japanese camera. So okay. Fully made in Japan. Fully made in Japan. Wow. And he had one. Well, that was made, that was made for the mass market yeah. too, wasn't it? But his book is Matter of fact, I've got his book. Um, at, we had dinner that night, and all the guys that helped them with the book were there, and they all signed my book for me. I've got like six signatures on the inside. Wow. It was fun, <laughs> and his wife. Is a it was a cellist player. She actually played for the for the French of Paris Philharmonic, so they were pretty influential people. They really were. Yeah. They lived right on they lived on on Embassy Road. His back over his backyard fence was the Iranian Embassy, you know, and on the other side was another Embassy and whatever. So he was he had, But when he picked this up in that Cadillac Seville, I couldn't believe it. That was a classic. Yeah. <laughs> Peter, Peter, did Canon ever have any dalliances in sub miniature, or was half frame as small as they went? Sub miniature. In, well, the 110, they made 110, yeah. Well, the 110, they oh, did, yeah. yeah. That's right. But nothing like uh, not, not, nothing like the um, Ducatis or anything like that. Or, or like the, the Minolta 16 or... Yeah, no. They, uh, I've got photographs of prototypes here, but they never ever put them into actual... Yeah, I've got a whole lot here that uh, Hayato sent me down of prototype cameras. So I've got those here, but there is... Uh, but they never went into production. Have you ever, have you ever met Uyama? No, look, it's one place. I'm getting a bit long in the tooth if what I've got left. I want to get up to Japan. But yeah. God, I've been, I've, I visited with him once too. You know, he lives near Osaka. We went to his home and spent a few hours at his home and saw his Canon collection. Mar this marvelous. Is that marvelous. You should see what he has. How long ago was that? That would have been uh, either 87 or 89. I can't remember. Either my first or second trip. And um, I think he's diversified. It was before man. the book came out. It was before his book came out. Okay. Well, I can. And I'm sitting there in, in this in this den, and I'm I'm holding like you know I got four or five Hansa cannons in front of me and Jays and whatever. <laughs> it's just amazing stuff that he had. Just and beautiful condition. All of it was beautiful condition. Well, the one in the JT museums actually got its original box. Yeah, yeah. There was another fella there. I think I think his last name was Oshima. And I met him at a hotel one night when we were there and he came in with a paper bag. He's carrying a paper bag, right? Opens up the paper mm -hmm. bag. He takes out a Hansa cannon box with the, you know, the flip top. He opens up and there's this beautiful yeah. little Hansa cannon sitting in it. Comes in with a paper bag, believe it or not. Could have been a, bottle, a whole lot of cash. I know. <laughs> well, we also have eight other people lurking on our show tonight. Uh, oh. Jess and Dwight and Mark or Richard, do any of you have any questions you'd like to bring to the floor? I want to call out real quick and say hi to Dwight Anderson. Uh, Dwight is uh, a reader of my site and he loaned me um, the Great Wall DF3. That's the camera we talked about a couple episodes ago. It's the little Chinese 6x6 SLR with the M39 mount. We were talking about it, how you can't just mount a rangefinder lens to it. So just want to publicly thank Dwight for letting me borrow that. Uh, I sure. got to get it in a box here and get it back to you soon. But that review will be coming up soon. But uh, since you're unmuted, did you have any Canon questions for, for Peter or anything, um, really? Not really. Most of my collection is older stuff. Um, when I started collecting, uh, you know, S Canon rangefinders and SLRs were all still in use, so they weren't really they weren't really what I was looking for. So most of my collection is early 1900 stuff, okay. but I did have 
back in the 80s, I actually went to shows and uh, did some selling because I had bought way too many cameras. And uh, I did have a Canon 7SZ run through my hands. Um, mm. bought, it, uh, bought it at literally a farm auction, a box of cameras, and they got up to $7. And I said, I'll take each one of them for seven bucks. Oh, man. And I, I got, uh, along with that, I got a Retina 3C and a couple other SLRs. And, and, uh, but it was just the body. And the glass was broken in front and the shutter wasn't working and I went to the next camera show and I sold it for a hundred bucks and I was happy to get that. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I really didn't know how rare they were at the time and um, I knew what it was, but uh, the, at the time I needed the money more than I needed the camera. So that's about the only Canon story I have. The 7SZ was the last the Z wasn't even an official designator, but I think no, no, Peter Decker, Decker uh, gave it that name, name. yeah, yeah, and yeah. he just he just chose Z because it was the end of the line, but it was a, a very subtly revised seven S. No, there was just some details as to where the uh, range render adjustment screw was, right. I believe, something like that. Yeah, the adjustment screw was above the Canon nine on the end. Yeah, so there was something improved with the viewfinder as well. They used a different glare reduction on the yeah, beam splitter because yeah, i think that the, 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 right the earlier ones would would ghost a little bit more so they improved sure, that on yeah. the z but that is the last one canon made a lot of lenses to please the american market uh cameras I should say, not lenses cameras to please the american importers at the time do you think that's why they kept releasing new models almost constantly yeah some of them are, i'll show you one that's the rarest one you can ever have what, while he's gone, if you look at Peter Deckert's book, uh, in between like 46 and 59, I think I counted like 33 different models of Canon yeah. rangefinders. Yeah. And we've got David queued up with a question next. That's a, that's a Canon 2AF. Ooh. One of two. Rare. 2AF. Yep. What's special about it? 2AF. What's, what's you? Forever made. It must have gone to Skinner. and Or no, yeah, it was Skinner and he rejected it. Well, somebody rejected it, didn't want, didn't want it. But uh, only 15 were made. Wow. One of only two known. And who was Skinner, real quick? Skinner was the first importer of uh, Canon stuff into America. Peter, he do you have like any of the cameras with the Skinner on the bottom? Guaranteed by Skinner? Yeah. yeah. Do you? Not all of them got Skinner on the no, bottom. Some, I've got one. You have one? Okay. MIOJ on the bottom. Yeah. They're very seldom seen. Yeah. Yeah. Deckard did a. a um, he, he actually named from the 1950s that was his own yeah that was his name yeah but uh he um i've got a list here but i've got one here in the collection as well i've had the i've just sold my yes i've had the three whereas cameras that canon uh peter deckard said you could ever own and that was the the 2af uh the uh, js and the 1950 so at least i said i've, I've owned the three rarest ones you can own. wow that's neat we had a question yes david ortega is um Put up his hand oh, for his question. hands raising. Oh, okay. Hi. Hey, David. Welcome. Hi. Um, so I was going to ask more in terms of servicing these cameras because I'm not sure if this, I think this one's a two that I have, a 2F probably. What's the shutter speed? Uh, 500th. 500th to two. Yeah. Okay. Two means 500, three means 1,000, IV means got a flash down the side. Oh, okay. Okay. That's the easiest way to remember. Yeah. Because I know that this yeah. one, I've I've shot it before, 
the guy that I bought it from, he said that he like had put like some that liquid rubber on the shutter to get rid of the yeah. pinholes, but it kind of got gummed up on itself. So it's like I'll have the frame and then it'll like have like a little sliver that's still black because yeah, yeah the shutter is probably gone. Yeah, there are guys that you in the US? Yes. Yeah, there's guys in the US that fix those things up. So oh, okay. Is it safe to assume that anybody who can CLA a Leica could probably do a Canon? Is that a, a probably yeah? Yeah, there's a guy here, Charles. Um, he used to do service on Leicas and Canons and a lot of others. And he said between the Leica and the Canon, there wasn't all that much difference. Is he still servicing, Peter? No, he doesn't. He's up in Queensland. No, he's going away. Oh, bugger. <laughs> Theo, you had mentioned that there's there's a lady there in Australia who works on cameras. Does she do Leicas, do you know, or Canons? I, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not sure what level she's at at the moment, but um, I think she's she's working towards that. Um, I'm, we're, we're hoping to get her on a, a few uh, soon episode, so uh, we'll uh, be able to ask her directly. Cool. Yeah, no, there's because uh, there hasn't been any camera markets here now for the last yeah. two years. There is a guy not far from me that was servicing uh, Canons and Leicas and that, a Japanese guy. Whether he's still doing, I don't know. David, what part of the U.S. are you in? I'm in California. Okay. The the number one repairman for that camera in the U.S. would be Yuxin Yi. Okay. He's, he's in Canton, Massachusetts. Yeah, because I had seen that he does like the Barnax, because I was also going to ask about the um, the V the VT Deluxe. Like, I'm not sure if they'll do these ones, but to see where... Probably, he probably won't do the VT because of the shutter of VT is a metal shutter, isn't it? Uh, no, I believe no, it's it be plus. A plus shutter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he could probably do that too. Um, okay, but he, his problem is he's 16 weeks delivery time right now, so he's very slow. Oh, okay. I think that's nah. honestly, I'm I'm thinking that a lot of people currently are behind. Uh, I don't know if it's well, pandemic it's related. I mean, I know Radu is eight weeks behind. Um, I was talking to somebody the other day that said Mark Peterson up in Wisconsin, not Mark Peterson. That's a person on the show. Who's the guy up in Wisconsin? Goldberg. That does Goldberg. That? Goldberg. Oh, that's well, it. No. <laughs> sorry. No, Goldberg. He's 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 like six months behind. Yeah, Don has always he's been like that for years. Yeah. Pro camera in Charlottesville, Virginia is running around six weeks right now, and they've done Leica's Barnax for me. So they would be also a an option for the uh, for the Canon. They do good work. So I just sent off an Asahi Flex to them. To Pro Camera. Yeah, Mark got yeah. a really nice Yeah, and they the estimate estimate they gave was like I don't say no, the estimate they gave you was exactly what she said. It was like six to seven weeks uh turnaround time. I think honestly six to seven weeks is is on the low end at this point. I don't know if it's pandemic, all all of us cranky collectors are getting our cameras out and wanting them fixed. Uh but it it seems like the wait time is is high everywhere. Yeah, ProCam did my Nikon F and it was I got it back last month and it was six weeks. Cool. I actually just sent out my Minolta to John Teeterington, but his is like a week or two behind. So I don't think it's that bad. Also, isn't there a VT Deluxe that has a metal curtain though, I thought? Yeah, the last one, VTDM has got a metal uh, shutter. Because there's three variants, right? We talked about that. Although they can change the shutters to uh, cloth to metal if they wanted. It's actually a very thin titanium, I think it is. Yeah, I think the one I have has, has the metal shutter on it. So for people new to this, the benefit to the metal shutters on rangefinders, for anybody who's curious, is that with a SLR, you have a reflex mirror that exists between the lens and the cloth shutter. But on a rangefinder, there's nothing in between the two. So if you leave your lens focused to infinity, 
and you take it outside and it catches the sunlight, you're essentially focusing the sun onto the focal plane, which is where the shutter is. And it's the same equivalent to taking mm-hmm. a magnifying glass. It, you could burn, you know, you could burn a leaf or something. And, and people with rangefinders could sometimes poke holes, burn marks you would see on the inside of the curtains if they left their... Um, their lens is set to infinity out in sunlight. So you got to be really careful with the with the cloth shutter rangefinder to either just not let it be exposed to direct sunlight, leave a lens cap on it or something, or never leave it focused to infinity. But with the titanium curtains, I mean, there's other benefits to titanium as well, but I think that the uh, decrease of a chance of burning a hole in it was a big one. My four that I just picked up has three, three pinholes and it's it's sporadic. And it's a question of, do I go at it with the fabric paint or send it off for a replacement? Some people are put off with the um, metal shutter on on peas and that because they're all crinkled. Right. Makes no yeah. difference at all. I they still work right. well and everything, even though they might look crinkled and not. They still work well. You know, what's interesting is I'm currently working on a review of the Canon Pelix, which, you know, it's an SLR. But the Pelix has oh, a, Pelix, a, yeah. a reflex mirror that does not move. So it's, but it's semi-transparent. 70% of the light that enters the lens on a Pelix goes through to the focal plane. So you're back to the same problem with rangefinders, where if you leave a Pelix focused to infinity in the sunlight, it could, in theory, make it to the curtain. So Canon was smart enough to put a metal titanium curtain on the Pelix. So if you, the, the Pelix, mm-hmm. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think the Canon Flex had a titanium shutter. Um, I believe the Pelix would be the only focal plane horizontally traveling Canon SLR with a titanium shutter. The uh, Pelix is interesting because the uh, lens they sold with it was a 1.2. Yeah. To get more light in. So if I put a 1.8 in. The one that I'm reviewing I, was loaned to me by Robert, actually. You know, a lot of people know him as, as the Nikon guy, but he, he likes mm-hmm. a lot of other brands too. And um, his Pelix was just a regular body, but he had the really rare. 38 millimeter flp lens so the the pelix because it had a mirror that never moved they made this lens specifically for the pelix that would protrude a little bit into the mirror box um you could use that lens on like an f1 if you wanted to you would just have to lock up the mirror but when you lock up the mirror you can no longer see through the viewfinder so when you put that flp lens on a pelix it it not only you don't have to worry about the mirror, but you can still see through the, the penaprism, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I think Jess, Jess Lands was holding up, a, I think, a Pelix and possibly that same lens. That looks like the one, too. Mm, well, the, the FLP is actually marked on the back for yeah. Canon Pelix only. It says it right on the bayonet mount on the rear for Pelix. No, I just it's not the fancy lens that I picked that up, added to my collection. A one four, yeah. One four. So it's big, well, yeah. probably being thrown out with the um, close to the uh, lens. Yeah. What I find interesting about the Pelix is you'd think it'd be a lot quieter because the mirror doesn't move, but to me it sounds the same. It's it's just as yeah, loud. It, it is. It didn't quiet it down. I mean, maybe like on an oscilloscope, you know, maybe it's like five percent quieter, but it, to the naked ear, it doesn't sound it's like an FD. Yeah. Mark Peterson, not not Mark Goldberg. Mark Peterson is raising his hand. Yeah, just, it's maybe not directly Canon specific, but just curious, something that as I've been looking at lenses and going along here, I noticed that the rangefinder lenses are significantly smaller than SLR lenses. I'm just curious what, what drives that. I know that the focusing mechanism helicoids in there that makes things smaller, but 
it certainly doesn't seem like the lens elements are that much different. So is there some fundamental difference um, with rangefinder lenses versus SLR the, uh, lenses? SLR ones have got more uh, adjustments in for the apertures and all that than the rangefinders. Like the FL's got yeah, more mechanical. The, um, the, the, the mechanical coupling. Two aperture, like a stop down on it. It's just two stop down rings on it. So it was just a lot more involved. Could it be the mirror box? Yeah, I think it was a whole lot of different things. And I just bulky. Maybe big, bigger was better. I don't know. Well, the flange distance would be different. So you're, you've got to, you got to account for the flange distance. So it's a distance, right. distance between the, the film plane and the, uh, the mount of the lens. And also the, the automatic uh, diaphragm that Peter was just talking about. And also, if you look at the older SLR lenses that were preset, you know, that didn't have automatic diaphragms, they were sometimes pretty small. Uh, a lot of those lenses weren't a lot bigger than, than a regular rangefinder lens. Some of the cine lenses were very small, and yet they were basically miniaturized SLR lenses. So they could do it smaller if they wanted. Another thing with uh, SLR lenses too is with the larger mount, it allows you to have wider, wider angle lenses, heavier lenses too. Um, you know, that was one of the weaknesses of the exact amount is that it had a small throat and it would be prohibitive. Like you won't, you won't find an F1 two exacta lens. I think actually one Japanese company did make one, but there was a, a an effect that having a larger lens allowed you to have more flexible lens designs that just weren't as common with rangefinders. So here's a here's a trivia: uh, true or false? Canon made a lens, an SLR lens with the exact amount. EX something or... Do you know what camera's for? They did. They made a 135mm that would fit an X. It was called an EX lens. The 135mm telephoto, very early one, but that was more to fit the um, answer mount. Who do they make it for, though? Well, Mamiya was actually part of... Well, Canon and Mamiya were in cahoots at one time. And that's where the Canon yeah. X came out. That right. was the leaf shutter one, which was the only leaf shutter... Uh, camera that yeah. uh, Canon ever made. So there's the Canon X leaf shutter SLR that Mamiya made for Canon. And I guess what an exchange, Canon produced a 135 millimeter exact amount lens for a Mamiya SLR. They, I've got one here, hang on. It's actually. <laughs> <laughs> and just to be clear, there was a Canon called the EX that was completely unrelated to what we're talking about. There, That's the one with the interchangeable front groups. But that's totally different. That is actually a Canon lens. It's apparently a reverse exact amount. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And that's a 1.9. Can you see that? When you say reverse, do you mean like top column where they had it upside down? I think so, yeah. Well, I was told this is like by a, guy, a Canon guy in America. So basically it's a reverse. I've never actually seen one. <laughs> but that's cool. Yeah, it was actually, it came on that camera, which was yeah. uh, a reflexer. That was actually sent to uh, the UK. Cool. Real quick, just to follow back up with Mark Peterson's question about rangefinder lenses. This is yeah. uh, an Exacta, an early pre-war Exacta. This is a Zeiss Tessar wide angle F8. So you can see that this. So yeah. this is an SLR lens, and then here's the yeah. standard like 50 mil. You know, Schneider made a lens. This is also, this is also a Tessar, but Schneider made. Um, a xenon in exact amount, so you can tell. I mean, this is really tiny. You know, to give you an idea, I'm just reaching for what I could have. Here's here's an Olympus OM lens, and then you, so you can see the difference in size. So these are both 
SLR lenses, but your pre-war Exacta lenses were quite small. Well, listen, it's almost half the size uh, for people listening. They just got bigger. Yeah, here. So here, here's a Nikkor uh, LTM 50 millimeter. Yeah. And then there, look, the SLR lens That's is actually tiny. smaller. So they, is that a, an M39? Th- this one is, yeah, the Nikkor is. This is that's M30. What's that fitting? That one there. The other one. The other one. This is for an Exacta uh, vest pocket. Vest pocket. The 127 Exacta. Oh, vest pocket. So it's a screw oh, mount. Okay. Yeah. But it's an it's an SLR lens though. So I mean, they did make them small. It's just they got fatter as the yeah. years went on, which is true of anything in cameras. I mean, compare the compare the Nikon F5 to an F2 or an F1. They got bigger. The thing is, too, I was talking to Fakeda once about how when they, when you go from the Nikon rangefinder system to the brand new F system, like the 50F2 on the F is very much larger than the one that came on the rangefinder, okay? Although their optical formulas are very similar. And he said part of it was all the internal mechanisms, the auto diaphragm, the way the blades are moving, et cetera, and the different helixes, et cetera. And also the fact that the lens is further away from the focal plane you have to the optics have to be different but he said another reason was and he kind of chuckled about it he said another reason was is that because the f body was approximately 10 to 20 percent larger than the sp body rangefinder lenses didn't look right on an f body they were too small okay so he said we had to look at it from a, that point of view that it just didn't look balanced you put an f2 off of a rangefinder nikon and put it in an F mount and put it on an F camera looked like a joke. He said we had to redesign yeah. the lenses to make them fit the body a little bit for cosmetic purposes. For for laughs, um, I have one of those Schneider exact amount xenons that are real tiny. And for the heck of it, I took a Topcon RE Super, which uses the exact amount, but it's a huge camera. And I mounted this tiny <laughs> Schneider on the front of this monstros- monstrosity of a Topcon, and uh, it looked quite funny. But it worked. I've seen an Ashy uh, a Pentax 110 camera mounted on the back of a big mirror, big mirror telephoto lens. Oh, geez. <laughs> it's like a little pin on a problem. So, Robert, for, for truly selfish reasons, I have to ask, will that Nikkor 3525 uh, work yes. on my yes. contacts too? Yes. See, the yeah. only thing is there's a myth out there about they're not functioning properly. Telephotos do not. Telephotos have to be specially mounted for contacts. But when you get into the wide angles, the error that's inherent between the two cameras is offset by the depth of field of the wide angle lenses. So your wide angle, especially a smaller app, you shoot at 5.6 or F8, you have nothing to worry about. You take an 85 F2 and shoot wide open and try to shoot somebody's portrait with it, you're going to be focusing on the eyes and it'll be the nose that'll be in focus, okay? Because there's no depth of field. But the wide angles, it does not matter. It does not matter at all. It doesn't really even matter on the fifties either. No, I mean, because the internal mount, like macro, yeah. right? But it's, it's that did they made they made four contacts? Yes, they did. Lenses eighty five and one thirty five. Eighty five. They the made the eighty five. They made eighty five f two, eighty five one five, the one hundred five f two five, and the one thirty five three five were made in specific contacts mounts. They have a C on the side of the barrel, on the side of the barrel. They yeah, have okay. a C. All right. C. There you go. So you'll sometimes see a Nikkor. Uh, lens that's uh, they call it a C lens yes. and that's what that means. No, so if you put a if you put a 135-35 Nikkor with the C on the side of the barrel for context and put it on your your SP and you shoot at infinity, you won't have any problem. You try to shoot a portrait with it wide open, you're going to have a problem. Yeah, it all has to do with an error. When Nikon was designing their camera, they thought that 
Zeiss was using 50 point something or other for their actual normal lenses, and it was 51 point something. So they computed their, their, their helixes differently. They made a slight error, which they caught later on, but by then it was too late, you know. But they actually made an error. It was an actual error on their part. So does anybody else have any questions? we still got some people we haven't heard from. Uh, if I could actually interject with a quick question here. I know, uh, Peter, you're primarily a Canon uh, collector. I have got some Leicas here. You got some Leicas too? Uh, do you collect any Australian cameras? <laughs> like the Bakeroo? Yeah, I've had the Dalka. Got the Dalka? Two shots. Um, that's about it. There's not that many, actually. Uh, any Austrians? The one I'm missing is the, um, the Leica copy. Yeah, Australia made the a lot of right? Was it Snyder? Yeah. Snyder. Really? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. It was, uh, I think that there was an antique shop in um, in Sydney at one time had yeah. one. But they're very Oh wow, I didn't yeah, even know that existed. Snyder. Yeah. 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 All right, Theo, you gotta go okay. get one. <laughs> yeah, the hunt is on now. <laughs> Actually, I think I've got an ad out of one of my very early photo um, Australian photographic uh, directories about it. It's not okay. I might hit you up to see if I can get a copy of that. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but for the for the listeners, it's really crap. You don't want it. No one wants it. No. Yeah. no. <laughs> it's like the uh, English read. Yeah. Yeah. Really good camera. Yeah. No, okay. Well, good. that's definitely something I'll be hunting for. <laughs> you won't get a Schneider anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Very lucky. Oh, I can dream. Yeah, well, I never thought I'd own one of those, to tell yeah. you the truth. Anyway, I finally got one. So. You have a 1950? Yeah, I got a 1950 there. This one actually came out of Jacksonville, really? Florida yeah. on eBay. Yeah. And when Peter Deckard talked about the uh, 2AF in his book, it came out of Jacksonville really? as well. Oh. Did you ever meet him? Yeah, because there was apparently there was, a, uh, there was an army base there or something. Yeah, naval. Yes, uh, Navy, naval base, naval air station. Yeah, I go to Jacksonville. Well, that's only an hour away from me. I guess I need to go over there and start cruise, start cruising through the the thrift shops over there more often. That's my 1950. Ah, so what's okay. special about the 1950? It was actually um, like it was almost like a proto proto um, camera that uh, uh, Canon made and um, Skinner. They made it for Skinner. Yeah, in California was uh, um, they were sent to him. And they were originally called a 2C or 2S or something like that. But he, he didn't think they'd actually take off. So Canon didn't go along with it. Or they actually brought it out later with the uh, 4 Series, 4S. But uh, no, they're quite rare. Actually, there's one up on the Facebook now that Pac Rim are trying to sell at uh, two and a half yeah. grand. That's a good price. Did you ever meet Peter Deckard? I met him once in 2000. Yeah, I met him a couple of times. Yeah. Very nice fellow. Yeah. Trouble is when you're living here in Oz, you don't yeah. meet too many people. Well, I met him. I we had him. We had him twice here in Chicago, and uh, once as a speaker for our club, and also once he came to the camera show. So I, I met him a couple yeah, of times, yeah. and uh, very nice fellow. Very nice fellow. Yeah. Back in 1981, Peter was uh, trying to come. He he had was. I think he started research his book, and he had sent out to uh, a number of people, including myself. A, a typewritten manuscript with, I think it was six or eight pages of his proposed uh, numbering system for the night for the Canon cameras and how to, how to mm. identify them. If, you, if you'd like to have a copy of that, I'll be glad to email yeah. you a PDF. Yeah, I've actually, I may have it here, but um, I'd love that. Yeah. It's dated 1981. So it's. Uh, I've got it um, through uh, Roger Reinke. Reinke. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Roger. 
Yeah, he was he was a dealer. Okay. Dealer. I met Roger once too. Okay, you probably have. The, it's probably the same one. This I is had actually there. a conference that oh. Peter Deckard had about cannon rangefinders at the time. 1985, he did the speech. That was the first published of his book, I think, 85. Yeah, this was 85 of a conf Oh, that, yeah. A seminar he had in 1985. Yeah, the two uh, quintessential books for cannon rangefinders are both made by Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Decker and Peter Kitchenman. Peter, how how do we get your book? Email me. Don't go through eBay. They they please just. I worked out the last one I sold on eBay. After I took off the cost of the printing, everything else, I made eight dollars on it. <laughs> okay, so you we can order yeah, them directly. Just, from you. just send me an email. I'm on the camera, uh, the the Canon Historical Society, which is a similar one to the uh, Roberts one. But it just deals with uh, Canon. Okay, and I'm there. Just message message me. And I'll send you my email address. We will put a link uh, to your email address, you know, in the show notes like we do every time. Yeah, yeah, we had, you can contact me through. We had Robert Shanebrook on, and he, you know, he sells his book directly from him. We had a couple different people yeah. purchase his book. You know, it's always great to have these books, and it's always excellent to be able to get them from the people who wrote them, you know, first-hand yeah. copy. You know, well, I have, P I have Peter's book. It's a beautiful book. Yeah. It really is. I'll, I'll have one soon. It was a 21-year-old uh, designer, first job he ever did. I just let him go. He did a good job. I just he did a good job. Yeah. He did a really, uh, look really. Trouble was, it was just too, at the time, postage was reasonable. Yeah. Now it cost me, what does it cost in America? 68 Australian dollars. For me to ship my book right. to Australia, my priority post is like $120. That's right. Yeah. It just you. When, I, when the book first came out in 2008, it cost me $35. Now it's like $120. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Pe uh, was it Petra? Petra Keller, yeah. Uh, the, uh, they've sold up. And I've actually emailed the new new people, but they've never replied because Pet Petra used to buy 10 books at a time. Yeah. Well, Tom Duncan, Tom Duncan took it over. Um, yeah, well, I've emailed him twice, but he's never replied. Well, he so. uh, he has my book now because he bought out Petra Keller, and all yeah. my stuff was shifted to him. So I don't know how many he's got oh, left. Right. But we are getting to that point in the show where we do need to start winding down. Uh, we like to keep these episodes uh, close to about an hour and a half. That makes them a little bit more editable. Enjoyed that. Yeah. Enjoyed this. Uh, does anybody have any questions or anything real quick they want to share? Are you finding? I'm finding now that a lot more women buying rangefinder cameras. I don't know about in the US. Yeah. Uh, when I go to the camera shows, young girls are actually looking at the older cameras now to buy. Really? So I don't know about in the US. There definitely is, you know, an, an interest in some female photographers. Um, you know, yeah. a, a friend of many of ours is Alyssa. She's a real big fan of um, rangefinders. I even loaned her my Canon 7 at one point and she fell in love with it. I don't know if there's a correlation to that or not, but there is a, a small but growing legion of, of girls out there yeah. that are interested in, in old cameras too, which is which is really cool. One thing that I wanted to share real quick, I just saw Robert last week, but um, Robert and I live in the same town and our local library I had reached out about setting up a display for old cameras in their like display case. Mm. And um, I went out there and I brought about 25 or so different cameras that I thought were historically significant. I printed up little three by five note cards with, you know, a small amount of facts yeah. on them. And then I kind of decorated the case with like empty film boxes and just some neat stuff. But I brought, I put in uh, my Nikon S and I put Robert's book next to it. And I said, you know, 
dire resident, you know, and I thought the the mm-hmm. lady at the library was just amazed that like this book was written by somebody local, you know, <laughs> that that same town's library is in. So Robert and I met up yeah. there uh, and he brought his daughter with it, took some pictures of us next to this play. So, you know, Robert's been famous for quite a while. He doesn't need more notoriety, but to, you know, to get a little bit of local recognition, we both thought was pretty cool. We put a copy of the magazine in there too. Yeah, I had a copy of the Nikon Historical Society in there, too. Um, so, you know, maybe it'll spawn some interest, you know, whether it's a, an old-time collector that it reignites some interest. Maybe we'll get some younger people that'll reach out. Uh, I haven't heard anything yet from the lady at the library, but if I do, I'll definitely share that. But I thought that was kind of neat. I think a lot of um, uh, younger people are actually picking up their father's cameras. And if they're interested in putting a film through it, they're amazed at what the results they get. Yeah, yeah. There's de- there's definitely a movement amongst the, the younger people, and it's a lot more equal than um, us crusty older guys. Anyway, <laughs> you're you know too old, God. Well, and that's where you know not, not to toot our own horns, but I think where podcasts like this come in handy is to try and make some of that yeah. information more accessible to newer generations. Because as much as I love these books, I really do love these books, but you guys are talking about $100 worth of shipping that it makes it, you know, harder to access to people who are newer. So what I try to do is, yeah, is, is while you guys are still kicking, you know, talk (laughs) about some of this old stuff. I haven't gone like that yet. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but we, we have new people that are interested all the time. You know, there are people who are willing to do things, you know, the older way, you know, you've seen the resurgence with vinyl records people you know modern conveniences are nice but there there is some benefit to the tactile you know feeling something i mean there's just something nice oh, yeah. about feeling yeah. a metal camera and glass in your hands as opposed yeah, to no, just, no plastic and when you right. fire you can hear the gears moving and all this it. kind yep. of stuff yeah a lot of people yeah, like the feel of gears and whatever yeah, i have a, a friend who owns a bar across the street from my cafe and he's like Hey, I found my grandfather's old camera. Will you take a look at it and tell me, you know, it looks kind of odd. I'm not sure what this is. And he brings it in and it's like a really nice uh, copy of a Samoka yeah. 235. And we're getting it up and running. And it's like, it's a great shape. It's been in a leather case for probably 50 years. Uh, but he was so excited to have that. Like, he's like, it's so heavy. And is it's that the so Samoka compact. where there's a separate plunger to cock the shutter and then and the shutter really? Yeah, that's really cool. Those Absolutely. Yep. The Samoka 35, isn't it? Yeah, but it, only the earlier ones yeah. do it. The later ones don't have that. They they got away from that. Well, Peter, you know, once again, thank you for coming on the show. Um, you know, Peter we, did. We really did I did uh, get Peter to send me his book. It just, you know, many, many waves, long ocean journey. It hasn't arrived yet, but I'm definitely looking like forward. Yeah, <laughs> I'm definitely looking forward to checking that out. Uh, like I said, we're going to include a link for, for Peter's contact information for anybody who's interested uh, in, in getting a hold of him. If somebody thinks of a question that we didn't ask, I could, I'm sure I could just email it to him and we'll bring it up in a, a future episode. Yeah. I'm available for any more if you like. Yep. But I'm, thank you guys, everybody else who joined. Um, we have Mark, we have Richard Armstrong, Dan Hausman, Bob Rodoloni, as always, you know, you're, you're wonderful. You know, it, it's a shame that we keep asking Robert Nikon questions because he really does have an interest in other things too. Canons. The, the first time I ever went to Robert's house, I was amazed at how many Canons SLRs and such he had there too. Robert, uh, Mike tells me I need to get you yes. talking about yeah. sub-miniatures sometime, which is a particular fascination of mine. So I've we'll got save a bunch that of those for a future too. episode. 
and, and Mark's yeah. all excited about that as well. Because I do a sub mini. We, we all share episode. that. Yeah, fine. This is the Camerosity Podcast, the world's first open source film photography podcast. So if you would like to have a sub mini episode, then we could do it. Yeah. <laughs> no, we we like to have special guests like Peter on, but we don't do it every week. So uh, we will be back in two weeks. Let me pull up my calendar here because I, I can't add 14 days. So I guess that's going to be February 7th here in the States, February 8th for Australia. Uh, we will record uh, episode 19 and we don't have anything planned for that episode. So we would like to get as many people to join us as possible to talk about whatever you want. Uh, it could be another Nikon episode. We could talk about sub minis. We could talk about Japanese hit cameras if you like. <laughs> you might cook something up in between. Thanks, everybody, for joining. Uh, this ends episode 18. Have fun. Right. Thanks, everyone. Take care, everyone. Bye. 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 Take care. Thank you. So there's a bunch of people in the waiting room. A whole bunch of Nikon people came to the Canon show. <laughs> so, um, all right, Josh, at any point you can just start reading, okay? So you read that, and then you're going to say hi to all three people, and Theo's going to go last, and he's going to have something to say, okay? you got to speak clearly, okay? If you make a mistake, we can just erase it and start over, okay? All right, whenever you're ready. <laughs>